Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. One way cycle. Either we want it, either whether we want it or not, everything is coming back to us, right? These chemicals are not going away, so therefore we're going to see them. There's a saying in water engineering is someone else is always downstream of someone else. So the, the action that we can take to help ourselves, the communities and the communities that are downstream of us is going to be very good in the long term. Chris Olivares is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Berkeley, working on chemical treatment of PFAS and their impact to microorganisms for pollutant cleanup. His research dives into how microbes and pollutants interact with climate change and what it means for guaranteeing equitable access to safe water. Chris is also a big swimmer and is happiest when he's fully submerged in water. We hope you enjoy listening and keep SDG talking. So Chris, in the news, we hear all about this term PFAS, but there's a lot of confusion on on what it is. I mean, it's something we we hear about how it's in our food and it's in the Mariana Trench. Could you tell us about what what is PFAS and why is it all of a sudden something that people should be aware about? Absolutely. So PFAS are uh, highly fluorinated chemicals that have been used for many decades and they encompass, uh, at least to the extent that we know, 4,700 plus chemicals out there in the world. And they're used for things like preventing uh, fuel fires, for example, in airports and in uh, firefighting training exercises. They also really uh, have really good uses for um, preventing. When you when you want to have, for example, your food containers, but you don't have, want to have grease leak through the container and also water, so both water repelling and oil repelling. So uh, this is the properties that have made it so successful and interesting for many different uses. They're also using carpets, for example. But the problem is that they are very, very resistant to heat because they were designed to be very resistant to heat. And now, uh, many decades after people started using them after World War II, we're starting to find out that they are pretty much everywhere from the Arctic, circles to our wastewater treatment plants, landfills, even chocolate cake, as the last FDA report uh, said. The problem is that people are starting to call them forever chemicals because they tend to stick around for very, very long amounts of time. And they have, the toxicity studies are ongoing, but there's uh, known effects, for example, with increased levels of cholesterol, um, also kidney cancer, prostate cancer, and a recent report found for female firefighters that they have increased risk of breast cancer. Wow. And I hate to joke about it, but it's like, come on, chocolate cake? Like, what next? But man, I mean... (laughs) I know, I was very surprised. It, it seems like it's in everything, and it's it's this chemical that's so good. I remember you had expressed in China that it's really good at keeping consumer-grade products on the shelves, sanitary from other stuff, but it's so good at its job that it's actually becoming such a detriment that's in all of our – in everything. And I know you had, you had mentioned – that that concept of bioaccumulation, you know, for someone that's not a biology guy or or a, a science person, you know, why what is this bioaccumulation threat, and why why is this aspect of the fact that PFAS doesn't go away and it just sort of accumulates in our ecosystem? 
Why is that a big deal that we need to be concerned about? Right. I think for the first on the on the on the manufacturing part of it, as every year passes and we're producing more of these chemicals, if they don't go away, they don't break apart by any any processes that we might typically have either natural or engineered processes that we might have, for example, in a, in a water and wastewater treatment plant or in hazardous waste management, then they will just tend to stick around. And that's what that's what we're seeing. And this this is even worse when we think about the term bioaccumulation, where it means that, for example, if you have um, an organism that primarily get, like either makes its own food and energy or that uh, is just uh, scavenging nutrients that are loose in the in the environment, and then there's another organism that eats it, and then another one, bigger one, that eats the second one, then suddenly the levels of a chemical are uh, in much higher quantities. So typically we see this phenomenon in, for example, mercury in certain types of fish. For PFAS, and typically it's, it's linked to the fatty content of the animal or the organism. But for PFAS, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's some relationship to the fatty content, but more so than anything in the protein. So we can find them in, uh, in proteinaceous uh, tissue in organisms. And if they're half-lives, it means that the, uh, 50% of the time that a chemical would remain in the body is long, then that means that our levels are constantly increasing the more we put these chemicals out there in the environment. Gotcha. Wow. I mean, it just seems like it's so ingrained in our society from how we manufacture and store products. And it's, it's sort of, you know, at a point now with thinking, well, you know, what, what can we do differently? You know, is, is like, it seems like we're just so used to using this as a, as a form of chemical, but are there, are there alternatives to using this within our manufacturing process or how do we kind of find a way to not become so reliant on using PFAS, whether it's for firefighter foam or consumer packaging goods? I think that brings a, an excellent question in, in terms of what is a good replacement or does it, does it, um, do we need another chemical even at all to, to replace it with? So for example, I know with PFAS, with, uh, increasing directives and, uh, likelihood of enforceable laws all around the world, that the longer chain PFAS, uh, so they have a, a long carbon uh, fluorine chain followed by another or other atoms, but uh, the longer chains are being replaced by the shorter chains. And the thinking is that if the shorter chains have to spend less amount in the um, in the body or in an organism's uh, body, and therefore it is less toxic. However. That, that is what we call a regrettable substitution because the, even though the properties might not be exactly the same, still the carbon fluorine bond is really difficult to break. So it is very likely that those chemicals will also remain for very long amounts in the environment. Now, the other concept I want to talk about too is uh, something that is called, oh, the concept of essentiality. So that means, is this property of a material, a consumer good, really necessary? For example, carpets uh, used to be at least 15% by weight of, uh, of, of PFAS. And, uh, and this is something that, well, does it, we know that there are, there's some uh, specs that require to direct, the requirement is not to provide the property of not being able to, to burn really quickly, but the spec is actually used uh, fluorinated chemicals to protect from fires. So I think 
change. I mean, it's a, it has to be a combination between how we think as a society of the consumer products and all the chemicals that make uh, our lives more comfortable, and also policy as well as technology and science, because um, we have to rethink how we how we how we live our lives. And maybe there's um, there's uh, applications where it's absolutely necessary, like for example, in uh, medical. Um, uh, procedures where in uh, in hard bypasses, for example, where it's absolutely needed because you want something that is inert. But not everywhere is that critical of a need. Wow, I love that word essentiality, uh, and I think that's that's something that should be talked about within all manufacturing. And you, you brought up of how that ties into manufacturing policy, science. It's such an intersection of everything that we do, and I think we really need to take a step back and ask ourselves. Is this really needed and why? What's it for? Is it for shelf life? Is it for fire safety? Is it because it's just cheaper? You know, and I, I that's, it's such a, we're opening up a can of worms when we start talking about that, but that's important because we obviously have a problem with PFAS and we can't keep doing what we're doing because if we keep doing what we're doing, then we're just going to continuously find these new elevated levels of cancer or lower IQs from what you mentioned. So, you know, I think, and I think that ties into what you had mentioned that, that new movie that came out that talked about this, um, you know, is that, is that sort of what this movie dark waters was talking about or, you know, what was maybe the key messages that you, that you took from that movie or that movie is trying to portray around PFAS in society? Yeah, the, the movie Dark Waters that just came last fall was a great case example that for me, what I came out of the movie theater thinking was uh, we use every day so many chemicals that we know so little about. And it's very easy to be overwhelmed and concerned by all the potential hazards of these chemicals. But I think the movie also brings another point that these chemicals have been used for decades. There was very little communication between the manufacturers the policymakers and the people that were directly affected by, for example, the, the waste water from the manufacturing operations of DuPont uh, and uh, resulting in the deaths of, for example, many cattle, many uh, of the cattle of one of the farmers of increased uh, cancers in, uh, in this community in West Virginia and all the complicated legal context that it really requires people to have an open conversation between science and policy and as well as manufacturing. Because uh, if not, we then what is going to be the next PFAS? PFAS is uh, a class of chemicals that we're starting to become, that we knew a little bit about uh, some uh, maybe two decades ago, but there was not, there is not as much information as, um, as the past uh, five, ten years. But what is going to be the next PFAS? So we cannot be, uh, as a society and all around the world, we cannot just wait and see what is the new uh, chemical uh, of the day that is going to be it's going to be a concern. And even as we pass legislations in, 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 in there's legislations in some countries, that doesn't mean that it's not manufacturing elsewhere in the world. So I think that also brings the point that we, we see in this community that it's a mostly a, a rural and low-income community that gets affected. And it's usually these communities in developed countries, but also when manufacturing moves away to countries where there's more lax uh, legislation, that the communities that have less power and agency also see themselves affected. So it is a global issue that 
it is difficult as a consumer to think about all the potential chemicals that we use day to day, but we do owe it, I think, ourselves to be more informed consumers um, of the products. And it seems like that, unfortunately, is a consistent trend to hit various regulation walls and a quote-unquote developed country and just push it over to a quote-unquote developing country. And it's a terrible example of how they just keep moving forward with the status quo without actually changing. So I appreciate you bringing that up. But I, as it's going through my mind, I'm thinking, okay, great, alternatives, let's keep thinking of them. But it just seems like it's going to take a while before that happens, hopefully sooner than later. But what about how to actually treat PFAS? Is there a way to kind of remediate these Superfund sites? Like I, I know, you know, I'd like you to talk about, you know, a little bit of how natural disasters play in this in terms of maybe accelerating this problem. But what what are some treatment options that exist and how we can actually try and remediate, uh, I guess that's the real word, the actual uh-huh. problem and, and make it not as detrimental to our food chains and society as a whole. Yeah, so for, for PFAS, water utilities and communities are implementing right now is activated charcoal or activated carbon. But that is has limited efficiency, mostly for the longer longer chains, the PFOL, perfluorooctanoic acid, and PFOS, so the perfluorooctane sulfonate. But that is uh, is working less uh, efficiently than with other chemicals because the lifetime of these activated charcoals and also some uh, resins that are used are much shorter than for other chemicals. It's not a sustainable solution. These these uh, solutions work essentially by sticking the chemicals to the activated charcoal, but then you have to either somehow dispose it. Or also, which are just moving the problem to somewhere else, maybe a landfill, a hazardous wasteland, who knows? But uh, other people are looking at destructive technologies. So some people, for example, are looking at how to use um, what is called, it sounds like a very sci- uh, sci-fi term, but for uh, solvated electrons. That is basically an electron that goes rogue in the water and try to perform chemical reactions on these chemicals. And they've shown uh, good results in, uh, it's going to a pilot scale. I don't think there's any uh, full operation that has this treatment. Uh, in the lab, what we're looking at is, especially for sites where you don't have to pump and treat the pollutants, when you're treating in situ, we're using a salt that is called persulfate, that when you heat it up, it forms, again, a, a, a radical that is a rogue electron associated with a sulfate, a sulfur-containing uh, radical, that can break down some of the PFAS. However, for our technology, some PFAS, the sulfonates, are, they, they are not reactive. So there's not a one solution for all. Probably we're looking at a treatment trains that is different strategies to clean up or remediate these pollutants as in, a, in a sequence. Yeah, and I know that applies to a lot of things where it's not a one-size-fits-all. And there's got to, and you just brought up a lot of different treatment options that can offer short, medium, and long-term solutions. And so I think that's that's something that we need to address with policy, address with manufacturers, and and address with consumers. And and so I, I guess with you know another question I have for you is how do we educate the community at large about this more effectively? I mean, it seems unfortunately fear-based tactics work very well within society. But, you know, is that, 
is the best way to communicate to people on the the terrible things that PFOS does and and te- and teach them what to do instead or you know how do we get the community you know Jane Doe's and Joe Schmoes aware of this and and what actions can they individuals take to be proactive on protecting themselves and not accelerating the problem I think information is uh, you say it's, it's it's that's that's fundamental and I think uh Having good resources to environmental literacy and, and information about youth responsible youth responsible disinformation as, as consumers of, of, of chemicals that were day to day, I think is very vital. I think some of the things that people can do is uh, reach out to water utilities. Water utilities uh, are, are, are all over the all over the world are, are, are starting to. To be aware of this issue, and there is uh, certainly some some places where you can well, you can governmental agencies where you you can get information, and maybe the water utility as well can provide you information about the about this issue. I know for communities in the U.S., particularly in North Carolina, I've been recently had this uh, issue of it has been very very uh, very close to to their drinking water. So for example, water utility reports often list the chemicals and list more information. So maybe going there, maybe I think another another thing that would be just just tour tour the water treatment plant. Usually, uh, people are very open to that or the wastewater treatment plant. Just know what happens to your water. Know what happens to your waste. Maybe you don't tour a landfill, but maybe maybe you can look up how a landfill works, or maybe you can meet someone in your community who works in a landfill. I can talk more. So I think having Knowing what is the, the process of everything that we use and consume from where it's made to how it's disposed, it's important because it's not a one-way cycle. Either we want it, either whether we want it or not, everything is coming back to us, right? They're, these chemicals are not going away, so therefore we're going to see them. There's a saying in water engineering that is someone else is always downstream of someone else. So the, the actions that we can take to help ourselves, the communities, and the communities uh, that are downstream of us is going to be is going to be very good in the long term. Uh, but I think thinking through as consumers about the question of is this essential that this is needed, and for some cases it might require legislation, but for other 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 things we can just make choices. For example, for contact paper that is like the if you go to for a takeout. Or food, and then you get it wrapped in this very nice, wax-looking material that is oil-free, that is protects against oil, and also water that likely has PFAS. Maybe even if it's odd, you can bring your own container, or uh, maybe getting in a paper bag instead of the of this uh, fancy oil-free, uh, water-free wrap paper. So small actions like that could be very beneficial, and also just be more aware of consumers. I think that's the that's the other part and demand. Uh, legislation from the from the authorities. Well said. So, two final questions to to wrap it up here, uh, and and this could be as as personal or as general as possible. But what's one thing that that's been keeping you up at night, and what's one thing that excites you as it pertains to society and the SDGs hitting the twenty thirty goals? So, one thing that has been keeping me up and uh, at night is the intersections between 
for example, extreme weather events and, and heavily polluted sites. And that is because, for example, there was a report in the U.S. that just came out last fall where it's, a, it's expected that 60% of heavily polluted sites might be directly impacted by wildfires. For example, in California, where I am living right now, the wildfires is not when or if they will happen, it's more when they will happen and where they will happen. And it turns out the wildfires are not just happening in the forest. Uh, wildfires are burning through entire cities. So suddenly you're putting all these chemicals and then also um, mobilizing sediment and, and eroding soils in heavily polluted sites. So that means that the amount of the extent of the pollution or the pollution perimeter is moving around. Like the same thing for floods, where you have sediments from this flood moving around and taking chemicals with them. So I think the the perfect concoction, or is it the concocting the perfect storm, is is just putting um, both or all the new pollutants that we have in the environment to make the nice products and give us a comfortable life, combining with extreme extreme events. So I think that's that's something that it's definitely. Sounds scary to me, but hopefully we can do something about it. Now, something that, that gives me hope and that I'm excited is that it's uh, the uh, people are becoming more aware of the. I think thanks to the to being more more having more access to information in the in the internet on, on the social media on having more access direct access on our on our day-to-day life to sources of information is good. And I think that's inspiring people to become more engaging in this, more more engaged in these issues. And, uh, and also just looking, looking to see how many entrepreneurial solutions are out there. Typically for water engineering, it has traditionally been like this big water utilities or these big infrastructure projects that take a lot of money. To, and, and space, and they're very rigid in, in a sense. But as, as, we, as we saw, for example, in Ad Unleash, there's a ton of ideas out there and very engaged people from all over the world and with very in, interesting perspectives and unique lives that really contribute this because then it's not just one set of people taking the solutions and imposing it all over the world, but actually building things together and listening to different perspectives. I think that is very powerful. I give people. Couldn't agree more. And Chris, I really appreciate your expertise and specialty around this topic, as well as just your the insight you bring to, to this SDG community as a whole. So from, from myself and the rest of the community, we thank you. And I look forward to seeing what's next in your research and your, in your work ahead. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. It's really nice to talk to you. You too. The one word that I just love that Chris talked about is essentiality. Is it absolutely essential to have this chemical within this particular product that we're making? You know, why is it even there? So I think we need to put that word essentiality in terms of how we're perceiving from a manufacturing standpoint, from a consumer standpoint, from a policy standpoint. And if you're going to put some particular chemical compound into something else, ask 
Why? Is it totally essential? And even on a greater macro standpoint, we can apply essentiality into everything we need, everything we do. Do I really need that plastic water bottle? Do I really need this meat? Do I really need this extra shirt? Do I really need anything else? Uh, really take that framework of essentiality and think about how it can apply to chemical adding to what we're putting into our manufacturing process to your daily life and to what you're consuming. Thanks, and keep sliding into the DMs and let me know what else you want to hear. Peace. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community. The goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks. Mm-hmm.